0: Going? Are you ready?
1: We are going. We are live.
0: All right. This is Tiffany Daniel Elliott. I should just go by L because that's what everyone calls me, (laughs) but I don't like to get rid of my names. And I'm Connor. And we are Interloper. Um, And really, I'm going to pick this right up because whether or not we use this, I just asked Connor a question right before we started recording and I want to know his answer. Do you think it's ethical to have children right now? Are you planning to have children?
1: Well, it's interesting because I've, I've gone through the process of thinking, you know, why bring a kid into the world who then has to die? Like just from a pure, like,
0: Oh God, life and
1: death standpoint. (laughs) Like I think, but that stems from like my own fear of like death. death. It, It was like, man, if I have to go through this, why would I make a child who has to go through this too? But it's, it's just like in the whole meaning of life in general, it's like, you, ha- you must believe that life is worth having because of the death.
0: But that's the point of like, I don't think that at all, because I actually believe that their deeper joy resides in the same place as deep grief, right? Like mm-hmm. that death actually gives meaning to life. But then to your point, why I brought this up is with where the world is projected to be in 30 years because of global warming, climate change, then will life actually be worth living? <laughs> like what's the responsibility of bringing someone who like, it will just be like trials and difficult and disease and more hard, like, like just you were, you were talking about like the the social responsibility of should you have a child bring another human being into the planet, but also like what's your responsibility to that child of like what you know their life is going to be like when they're in their thirties, forties, fifties.
1: Yeah. I mean, to some extent we don't know. I mean, uh, according to this, report that you're talking about, the code red report by the UN climate scientists, like we aren't too far gone yet. The The person did say like, if we don't get our act together right now, like immediately,
0: which we know <laughs> won't happen,
1: which, which the, you know, the, the odds of that happening are probably not going to happen. Yeah. But just to say that we don't know for sure. So that there's room for faith in the sense of there's right. all, there's a great spirit of humanity that people believe in, which is that we will figure it out. And I and I, I believe in that, that I, my generation and your generation will be a part of preparing the next generations to figure out how we're actually going to deal with this
0: But I think that globally. I actually think our only hope of making real changes, like, I don't know that I have the same faith in humanity as you do, because I think that money wins over the faith of humanity, like always. Like, I just look historically and we still have money and power, like the decisions are being made by who's making money and who's in power and making changes doesn't benefit them. So I don't think it's going to change until you change who's in power. And I was thinking about this morning, um, just some light thought while I was taking a shower and I was like <laughs> thinking about, I was like, I wonder, you know, one of the things in the report they're saying is that you have to, we'd have to stop now to see any effect in 30 years. Wow. And I wonder if the only time we're actually going to create change, enough change to slow things down is when the younger millennials, Gen Z, are in power. So we're talking about not actually having the power to make changes for another 20 years. Yeah. So even though, like, I hear what you're saying. I believe in the spirit of humanity, too. I believe that younger generations, they get it. Like, they, you know, like when I was listening, my fire alarms are going off again because of the smoke. Hang on. Speaking of climate change. seems I know. (laughs)
1: So uh, what Ella is experiencing right now is the forest fire smoke in Seattle at the moment. Today is August 13th, and I'm sure you can look it up in the news on August 13th, 2021. (laughs) She basically opened up her windows and her smoke alarms are going off because it's too hot. Because we don't have AC in Seattle. And so she has her windows open. Smoke is coming in and it's causing the smoke alarms to go off. So that's pretty great. But it's not all doom and gloom here on the Interloper podcast. <laughs> um Yeah, we we believe in hope. <laughs> I can't even really say that in a, with a straight face.
0: Are you in here What are you in here laughing about by yourself?
1: <laughs> i'm i'm just making jokes
0: all right i'm as I, usual I so all of our windows are shut which means i might have to turn a fan on in a minute which might not be great for editing
1: <laughs> okay but otherwise
0: i'm not gonna make it
1: well then should we should we go ahead and get started on the this land is my land introduction not that this isn't already a part of the discussion. this is
0: part of the discussion hell yeah it's part of the discussion but let's go ahead and introduce <laughs> it
1: All right, well, this current conversation series that we are introducing is called This Land is My Land. And we are talking about what does it mean to belong in particular to land, to your location? What is our relationship to land? How do borders impact us and our relationship to one another?
0: Read the thing, read the thing.
1: All right, read the thing. Read the little
0: curatorial paragraph.
1: All right, curatorial paragraph. There was a big high wall there that tried to stop me. The sign was painted, said private property. But on the backside, it didn't say nothing. This land was made for you and me. Original lyric from This Land Is Your Land by Woody Guthrie. This Land Is My Land is a pairing of two solo exhibitions. Each artist asking about the impact of the lines we draw between us. Rodrigo Valenzuela's afterwork explores the significance of redefining physical and digital borders in land and labor. And Marina Camargo's Shifting Displaced The work examines moving boundaries and the spaces between, from the northern and southern hemispheres all the way to a specific Seattle neighborhood. What determines ownership? Landlines, bloodlines, or simply believing this is the right question to ask? There we go. That was really fun because on the website, the black lines cover sometimes the words.
0: Oh, so it's like a guessing game.
1: (laughs) So I'm like trying to read while that's happening. Anyways,
0: First, I want to actually start with the end of the paragraph is like are these even the right questions to ask and kind of start there of like we're we're talking about borders we're talking about land and ownership and basically who decides who has power who decides who owns things and really I want to start with being like is that even the right question to ask should we be able to own anything what does that mean and I'm, I'm thinking about this in, in the multiple. This is this is going to be a hard thing to talk about because it's so nuanced and it's so big. And so I want to start off by saying that like we are not going to do this well. We are not going to talk about this topic well. We're not going to talk about it in every avenue and nuance that it deserves. But I think one of the reasons we have so many problems that we do in the world is that we're not actually trying to talk about this as much as we should.
1: And the more and more we've been developing this podcast, this conversation, it just keeps expanding, and it's just like I think we we chose one of the most expansive conversations, right? Which in some ways foundational to civilization. Which is what right. does it mean to own something,
0: right? And and I'm so that's kind of what I want to start there is like what does it mean to own something, and then we can kind of talk a little bit about like who actually gets to own things and why, and how do we shift this? Like from this other perspective of ownership, I want to start by talking about capitalism. <laughs> in like a very (laughs) armchair rudimentary way because I haven't studied this to the level that a lot of people have, but I just want to bring up something that I've noticed and hear your thoughts on it. Everyone is talking about capitalism right now. And I see this a lot in the creative and arts Mm -hmm. community about this idea of down with capitalism. Let's get rid of capitalism. Capitalism's ruined everything. Now, I would argue that that is true. Capitalism fucking sucks because it is just lifting up the rich and pushing down the poor. And I remember when I was in... Grad school, every I would heard so many artists talk about get rid of capitalism, let's get rid of capitalism. And I just kept thinking, like, but, but what do we replace it with? Right? It's this like lofty ideal of we hate capitalism. Now, I know if anyone's listening to this podcast and they study this or they work in any kind of area, they're like, that's impossible. Nobody's saying that. But what I'm talking about is like the idealism of the people that have the loudest voice right now from the protest side of the community. And so my question always is, like, what what happens when we get rid of capitalism? What do we replace it with? And I've heard often, like, we can't replace it with anything. We just need to replace it with a different form of capitalism, kind of this, like, gradual shift into something else. But when I was in grad school, I heard so many people, they were just like, let's get rid of this. And I was like, man, if we just get rid of capitalism completely and, and you know, we are saying, like, it's worth a battle and war, like, really taking into account what the sacrifices are, right? Like, it's bloody. People die like this is uh, not something that will easily change. And we had a class on Marxism and we were talking about like how we got to capitalism and really kind of like opening up this conversation about how capitalism replaced feudalism. And one of the things that capitalism gave us the ability to do was to own. And so now we find ourselves in this giant mess we're in because of who has the right to ownership. And we basically created another form, in my mind, of feudalism, where some people have the ability to own and other people don't, even though we're saying everyone does. But one of the big differences is we actually at least started moving in the direction where people could own their bodies. Because up until capitalism, under feudalism, you didn't own your body. And I think about this a lot as a a woman. And I know we're going to go into this even more in the next series. I just think about that a lot of, like, as I'm picking apart the problematic things that ownership creates. I'm I'm really easy to critique that because I'm living in the problem of that. But I I kind of also want to like bring in that idea of like, what are the benefits of ownership? What does being able to own something, how does that benefit mm-hmm. us? Under a very basic level, I get to say no when someone wants to have sex with me. And, you know, obviously we know that like, <laughs> Not everyone listens to that. And some people still operate under these like feudalistic rules, thinking they have the rights to women's bodies. But legally, I at least get to say, I at least get to say this is not who we are as a society. This is not where we're going. Um, We at least get to work towards and have a basis towards ownership of our bodies. And I'm really out of breath because of the smoke and I can feel it. (laughs) But go ahead. (laughs) What do you think about that?
1: Yeah. I mean, I'm thinking a lot about borders and boundaries when it comes to that, that like in order to own your body, you have to be able to have boundaries that can be set up and listened to and followed. Right. And we, we talk a lot about permeable boundaries on this podcast. And like this, it's a common and constant question that we're asking is like what borders and boundaries are necessary for us to be safe and healthy, but also how do those get in the way of us being able to have real connection, and intimacy with one another in the land? So I'm really interested in this conversation about borders, what does it mean for borderlines to change? And it's something we talked about with Marina was what happens when borderlines and like the sovereignty of your region has changed because of war or a, a moving empire or even gentrification when like your neighborhood starts shifting, even though that wasn't always what you thought. It wasn't how you experienced the, of who was in charge of that area.
0: Right. I'm going to have to pause a second because I'm actually struggling to breathe and I'm wondering if I trapped all of the smoke inside. Uh, So let me just open a window and put a fan facing outward. Okay. Give me a sec. Mm -hmm. Man, I want to be like, you can edit all these interruptions out, but part of me is also like, but this is real life. This is like (laughs) what it really means to live in the world right now. It's like we are struggling. I'm reading this incredible book by Sarah Schulman, and we are, fingers crossed, hoping to get to interview her on this podcast. Um, So I don't want to talk too much about it because I really want to talk to her about her book, and she is just fantastic and amazing and intelligent. And this book that I'm reading by hers um, right now called The Gentrification of the Mind is, is a concept I'd love to talk about. And it's this idea of, because what we're talking about is like the moving of, of boundaries and borders, movement, migration in a physical sense. And that's often where you hear it talked about a lot. But what she does is she goes into this idea of like, what is the mentality of gentrification? So first of all, how how would you define gentrification?
1: Me? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, I would define gentrification as a place where economic development comes in because they see an opportunity for improvements quote unquote to occur in the sense of safety the sense of aesthetic the sense of economic opportunity that people are taking advantage of a place that they deem as affordable and then they want they end up increasing the value of the area
0: right so i think that when we define it i think that's often how i hear it defined similarly to that and we define it that way um It becomes problematic to talk about a solution because and we found this even in the podcast when we talked about TOLA, this idea of is gentrification harmful? Yes. Is a solution to stop migration? No. Do you tell someone they can't have economic opportunity? No. And so like, how do we deal with that? We have to nuance it. And so one of the ways that, and I'm going to do my best to explain this, but honestly, Sarah Schulman is so much more intelligent than me that I'm not even sure I'm explaining this correctly, but this is what I'm getting from it. And it's so blowing my mind. But that the way that she's thinking about gentrification as a mentality. And so she really talks about it as a historical moment in time that's contextualized. It's not just this like abstract thing that continues to happen. And um, one of the things that she argued is that we will be post-gentrification or already are. And so I want to hear what she thinks about that now because she wrote this book in 2012. Mm -hmm. But um, the reason I bring this up is that because she talks about how it's not just rich white people moving into neighborhoods of color or, or like creating opportunities or making money. It's more it's very specifically that it talks about the boomer generation being this generation of hippies that moved, then moved into the suburbs and became yuppies. So um, we're going to talk about a reason why we can blame the boomers even more than we already do for everything. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. We can blame everyone, but how the boomers were hippies turned yuppies in the suburbs. And then they had children that were Gen X children and, and we're talking about just from the context of the United States, by the way, I just want to say that. And that then the Gen X children moved back into the cities, but they brought the mentality of the suburbs with them. So here's an example. Mm. It's not, and, and like, and what she's really arguing, this is an argument that I want to talk about is like, do artists contribute to gentrification? And there's been a lot of articles that came out, this idea that artists always start gentrification because they find a cool neighborhood, they move into it, they start making it cool and more attractive for investors to move into, which then like, gets this ball rolling of gentrification but what she actually argues is it's not the artist because often artists move into cities because they want to experience the culture as it is in that city so for example would be there is if you want Ethiopian food it's owned by an Ethiopian family not like a chef a foodie culture that's like creating fusion Ethiopian food right and so what she's talking about, like we always use the coffee shop as the example, when that coffee shop moves in or that fancy donut shop or whatever the trend is, you know, gentrification's happening. But what she's saying is it's not just opportunity and money. It's because the people that want that coffee want the familiarity of the suburbs in the city. Mm. And so it's not just about moving in and creating opportunity. It's moving in and wanting to change a city to feel more like what you came from, which was Yuppieville suburbia mm. and then what ends up happening is homogeny everything feels like white yuppieville suburbia
1: <laughs> Yuppieville. does that make sense yeah no yeah i mean and i think i mean that was something i don't know if i actually said in my definition that i <laughs> said off the cuff was it feels like a it's like an aesthetic thing that involves both like and yeah and it's an aesthetic of familiarity to the people that are doing yes. the gentrification it's like right. they want what they are used to to be in a new place that is fun and cool.
0: There is an aesthetic of this like white wealthy gentrification, right? But who who's defining what that aesthetic is? And so what she's proposing is it's coming literally from this like all the mentalities of of suburbia. And and Gen X growing up with that and then when you come back into the city which used to be vibrant and diverse and there were different cultures and different languages and different people all living together and understanding each other's differences and learning from differences. And then as these artists and she calls, she talks about there being artists and replacement artists and she calls them the replacement artists are the ones that became the professional artists that came in and in specifically in New York and really tying it back to the AIDS epidemic, how literally gay men were dying And then their apartments were being gentrified as they died, right? So they were in rent-controlled apartments for $230 a month. And then when they died, suddenly that apartment in that same building could be $2,000 a month. And these, like, Gen X kids would move back into the city and they would be, like, an artist, but they were paying $2,000 a month. And so literally gentrification was made possible through the death of people. And it all started to look the same. Yeah. It just made me realize, like I think we, we apply this idea of gentrification just like a wash over everything, like, oh, this is the problem, let's fix it. But it's so nuanced, and it's so nuanced to the history of each particular city. But it, it has a lot to do with who's determining what's familiar and what's being brought in, right? Like, things pop up because of demand. And where's the idea of demand coming from? It's what's familiar. It's the kind of coffee shop I want to go into because it feels good to me. Why does it feel good? It's what I know. Why is that what I know?
1: Yeah, and I'm really curious what she would say now, like 10 years later. Right. Because in some ways, like for me as a millennial gentrifier, I like the coffee shops that I see and have like experienced actually feel nothing like where I come from, which is also the suburbs Mm -hmm. and the sense of aesthetically, like there is a specific aesthetic of like the suburbs where like middle-aged people, they have a certain aesthetic that is different than like the aesthetic that I see with like millennial coffee shops.
0: I would just argue it's just the aesthetic of the children of the boomers. <laughs> like, like, I think it's a nuanced mm. change in aesthetic from the, the suburbs, but all I'm saying oh, is see. it's a cooler, it's a cooler version of what you saw in the suburbs. Gotcha. It's because it's the children of the people <laughs> that went to that coffee shop wanted to make that exact same coffee shop cooler.
1: Gotcha. Okay. No, that but makes it's sense.
0: still the same thing. It's still the same aesthetic. It's still <laughs> the same community. It's still this idea of expansiveness And elitism and if I pay $7 for this latte, it must be better. (laughs) Is this idea of let's all sit in community, but ignore each other and not actually like this to me. And so let's define a little bit like what is suburbia, right? Like, uh, let's all live together, but not impact each other. Let's Mm. have enough space that we can have community when we want it, but not when it's inconvenient. Let's not be uncomfortable. Right. And so when if we're if you're sticking with this theme of the aesthetic of the coffee shop, that's, that's what it is, right? Let's all be together without actually, you don't actually have to hear my problems. You don't actually have to like wade into my life, but we can feel like we're together because we're in the same room. That, that's not what, what like a community center in a neighborhood would have been like, like a bodega where you would get your coffee or something like that, where it's like, you know, everyone in the neighborhood, you're talking about their lives, you're, you're coming together to be community in these places, whether it's whatever that community center in that neighborhood was within a city. So it's really interesting when I started thinking about this as like gentrification as a mentality, I can see it so much more clearly as like, whoa, this thing that is red flagged as like a neighborhood's gentrifying, what is the mentality that's being brought into it and where's that coming from? Mm. And like the simple idea of like, that's a suburban mentality of like being able to be together but not talk to each other.
1: Yeah, and actually, as you're, as you're talking about this, I'm trying to think of like, <laughs> I think I, I found myself, I'm, I'm being a little critical and cynical of maybe myself here. And, and I think other people that I know, and maybe this is a general mentality too, which is that people move to the city from the suburbs also seeking out community. But then like, what does that actually mean and look like? And like, I don't know, we've talked about how my experience in Seattle hasn't always ended up in me feeling like I'm a part of a community necessarily. And, and I, again, that's also like pandemic related, but I do wonder, like, did I bring a mentality that I grew up with, which was like this longing for community, but maybe it like is too uncomfortable for me to actually be going beyond myself to, right. you know, I, I feel right. like the, I need this isolation and independence and like the, in order to like feel safe. But then at the same time, it, it results in me being disconnected from a lot of people around me and then feeling the same way.
0: So here's what I'm going to argue, which I think is what she's arguing. You've already been gentrified. I
1: like have that, been gentrified. What you're descri-
0: yeah. Like that, that what you're describing is actually that your mind has been gentrified. And so it's not that gentrification is coming. It's that it's already happened. Like it's not going to keep happening because we've done it. Like it's been gentrified. We've gentrified our minds. And so the example would be the fact that you're looking for a community and can't find it. That's this mentality of <laughs> gentrification, of this idea of we... we we have already begun to isolate ourselves and separate ourselves and, and become homogenous and how we're understanding things. And so even what we're desiring, what we're looking for. And, and I, you know, it's not, not just you, like one of the things that that I really want to talk about is gentrifi- <clears throat> gentrification of creativity. And she goes a lot into talking about like the MFA program and academics and institution oh, and things that we talk about, about like, is it possible to make change from within the institution? Wow. And, um, and so part of that is this idea of, if, if we're talking about creativity, right, then really the enemy of creativity is a gentrification of your mind because it's making everyone think the same thing. And, 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 and by that, I mean, it's making everything safe and comfortable. So even when you brought up the, the, the idea of comfort, seeking out comfort, that is your mind's already gentrified. Like it's done <laughs> because the idea of wanting to seek out comfort We've lost the battle of prioritizing creativity, mm-hmm. and I'm not saying it's like forever. I'm saying now the work becomes how do I degentrify my mind?
1: Yeah, and so actually, that's something I'm hoping we can talk to is uh, Lulani and Flint. They are a part of this exchange of land from Yale Union in Portland to the Native Arts and Culture um, Organization, and their their whole idea behind this exchange was what does degentrification look like in a physical way. And I'd be really curious to ask them what their thoughts are on this as well.
0: This is just really changing the way that I'm thinking about everything. Whereas before I, when I think about it as a physical thing, I think about, okay, where's my place in that? Should I move into these neighborhoods? Should I not move into these neighborhoods? How much of it am I causing? Am I reinforcing? How much of it am I fighting against? But it's very different when I think about it as something that happens in your mind first. And then all of our actions are just examples of mm-hmm. that. And it's been really convicting because I think I've realized like, oh crap, like we grew up in that generation where our minds were being gentrified and were gentrified. Like that's when it was happening. And so thinking about the question of who has the right to own things, I'm thinking about it through a lens of gentrified thinking. And so we still, you know, this is complex things. We still live in the system. And so we have to deal with it, right? Yeah. Like how do like, so that question that you were talking about is like, what, what do we do now? I think the conversation is so interesting is going back to this idea of like, how did we get to this place where we were all coming from the same point of view, which is essentially what this podcast is. I'm, I'm going to be bold and say <laughs> that our our whole idea of starting this podcast, I think we kind of stumbled into it and are kind of poking around it, is I think we're trying to degentrify our minds <laughs> because... We're trying to have conversations that are nuanced. I want to have conversations where we we leave and we think, I, I don't know what I believe anymore. I don't even know how to talk about this anymore. And like I, a great example, I did an artist talk with um an artist with the uh, Schaff- Schaffenster, um, Andres Martinez-Ruiz. And I love talking to him because every time I ask him a question, and I'm a pretty like n- gray person, I rarely think in binaries. But I realized in order for me to like interview him and ask him questions, I was like defining my questions down to hey, what do you think about this? And even in the way I was wording it, when he when he answered it, I was like, Oh, you're 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 you starting out every question by basically telling me why the question is problematic. <laughs> and it was so it was so great. Like, and not in those words, but essentially I would be like, Hey, what do you think about this? And he would be like, Well, you have to think about it from multiple perspectives. And when you think about it from this perspective and this perspective, mm. nothing's good, nothing's bad, everything's good, everything's bad. Here's what we're learning, here's what we're not learning. And I was like, Oh, how do you Yeah, even the fact that I asked the question of what you thought shows that we're looking for one or two perspectives. And Mm -hmm. every single time he was like, I have multiple perspectives and it was so refreshing and so great. And I think that's part of like what we're trying to do in this podcast is saying, Hey, let's break open this idea that we should all think one option one or option two, or even option three, but more like, I think there might be thousands of options and one of the things that him and I talked about was really interesting is like, what what do we do now that we are suddenly, because of technology, we're seeing all these different perspectives. But what that does is we no longer have an authoritarian truth. We now know that there is multiple, multiple, multiple sides to truth. Mm-hmm. So now yeah. we're in a, pro- a time in history with a problem we've never had before, where what do we do when we don't have a single truth? Because we no longer have a hierarchy of power who's telling that truth. The second problem is, how do we know what's true? <laughs> Right. And is anything true? So I know that kind of took us on a a rabbit trail a little bit, but it kind of just defines the complexity of why this stuff is so difficult to talk about, because the more we learn, the more it's hard to know what we think and what we believe. And I think that's kind of a good spot to be in.
1: Why do you think it's a good spot to be in?
0: Because it's more honest, more comp, it's more complicated for sure. It's way more complicated. It's way harder. It's less happy. I don't know. Maybe this is a horrible <laughs> way to live, but it's just more honest. I
1: don't know. It just seems like so much effort.
0: The only way for me to talk simplistically about something is to buy into delusion because nothing is simple. In fact, I think one of the in the this chapter on gentrification of creation, she talks about how like one of the definitions of gentrification is Trying to simplify things instead and getting rid of complexity.
1: yeah, so you're talking a lot about homogeneity and simplicity when it comes to these things. I mean it, it, kind of wrapping it back to capitalism in my mind it's it's because you have to be able to sell everything. Everything is up for sale and in order for people to pay attention and have interest, something has to be sellable, which has to be reduced into a bite sized version of what something is
0: right and so there's there's problems everywhere. Of commodifying everything. But I think what I want to argue is if we can't attack all of the problems, if we can't, we don't even know where to start. I think the most dangerous thing that we have done and the thing where we need to start is commodifying creativity. And you can see this within the art world the most, but it is everywhere. And it's this idea of for the professionalization of the artist, right? That before creativity was about pushing against something, being the interloper, saying, hey, there's another perspective that everyone's not seeing. Here's another perspective. Here's another perspective. Let me question this, not for the sake of questioning it, but just because you're not getting everything, right? The idea of the category is homogeny, simplifying. The artist, the role of the artist, the role of creativity is to complexify, is to open us up. And so when we began to commodify the art world, when we began to commodify creativity in the art world where we held so much creativity, then it became about, well, if I'm going to be a professional artist, I have to make money, which means I have to make something that doesn't make people so uncomfortable. They won't buy it. Right. And so I think that for me, I'm realizing more and more, this is where we have to start. This is where we have to separate. We have to separate the commercialization of creative from creativity. We have to separate capitalism from creativity, because if we're going to find solutions, if we're going to find answers, like when you're asking earlier, what's the point? if it's making it so complex, we can barely talk about it. I don't know, but I have to believe that somewhere in there, if we're looking for some kind of solution, it's going to be in this incredibly diverse place of creativity where we have multiple sides that we can throw around and create from. And so if, if comfortability has infiltrated creativity, we have a big problem.
1: So in Khalil Gibran's The Prophet, he there's this quote about houses, and the prophet is talking about how we we actually have these houses and they become prisons for our comfort, basically. And mm. there's this there's this line that I'll read that he says, "Verily, the lust for comfort murders the passion of the soul, and then walks grinning in the funeral." <laughs> and basically, he's just talking about how comfort and trying to create an entire experience of our lives that's surrounded by comfort it actually just murders and kills the parts of ourselves that are passionate are creative and imaginative that need to be not caged and that actually comfort creates a cage and and it's a very like luscious cage but we don't always recognize that it is a cage
0: Right. So I am on level 10 alert right now in my brain. And I have been since I've been really thinking about this series because what I'm realizing is this is not something external, but this has infiltrated my brain. Hmm. And that is level 10 alert for me of like, if I'm an artist, if I'm a creative, if this is our what I believe is our, our greatest asset and our greatest solution, how we can create change, how we can create equity, how we can create these things that, that I really care about. Crap the the like there it's this idea of like the well has been poisoned and what do I do now like it's not so much about action it's about like this idea you know starting with myself of like really reassessing and so when you're sitting here talking about comfort I mean like on a theoretical level I am okay with not being comfortable in fact I make people uncomfortable all the time it's like the number one thing I hear from people and I do a lot of art about comfort and discomfort and perceived comfort I this all the stuff with throw pillows I'm really fascinated by them so I'm like sitting here reading this and thinking about this like idea. And and I want to, you brought up home ownership and there's a lot right now because there's some crazy stuff going on the market in the U S and I started to like realize something about myself of I have, I've traveled a lot and I've lived in a lot of other, of other countries. And I realized that when I live in other countries, there's something to me that just submits to wherever I am. Like, I don't, I, I feel like, I miss home and the familiarity of what I understand as a coffee shop, but I pretty easily let go of that. Or I challenge myself in my discomfort and think I'm a guest here. Even if I live here, like I've lived places for years and I'm like, I am a guest here. I want to understand that. And I'm excited by it. Like there's that moment of discomfort, but I want to push through it um, because I came to this country because I love how this country is. Right. And so I was thinking about like, that's my mentality. And also I tend to want to live in the middle of the city. And right where the most biggest mass of people are. And so every time I've lived overseas, every time I've traveled, I've always found myself in in mass groups of people where it's uncomfortable. And I am hitting and elbowing people all around me and being weighted in upon about cultures that are new to me and things that are new to me and thoughts that are new to me. And I think this is arguably why artists move to the city and why creatives move to the city. But I found myself in Seattle in my homeland in the U.S., and I'm sitting and I'm, I, I'm thinking about how I navigate myself in my home city and I feel claustrophobic and I feel like there's too many people. And I find this great little affordable apartment, more affordable than anywhere else that's on the water with. And the main thing that I love about it is there are yards. Nobody has yards in Seattle. And I'm sitting here looking around. I'm like, crap. I literally found a place that looks like the suburbs inside the city. And that is where I gravitated toward mm. And, it, and it, I was sitting here like in my yard the other day thinking about when did I get infected with this idea that like what is familiar, what is comfortable, what I want is space and suburbia. Whereas like when I'm at other points in my life, I'm desiring creativity. Like I want creativity. I want people. And somehow in my hometown where I live, I want space and comfortability and suburbia, and it was kind of a really gross realization for me. Mm. And I started to really inspect. Wow, this has infected me in a way that I didn't realize. And I, if it's infected me in my choice simply of where to live, it's got to have infected multiple places in my life. And I need to really be examining that. Mm.
1: Yeah, while you're talking, it's making me think a lot. I've been I've been on this big road trip, and I actually want to talk about that a little bit on this podcast because yeah. Um, one of the questions we're asking, you know, is what does it mean to belong to land to your location? And this is the first time I've ever done any sort of trip that is wandering esque and like also on my own. And I remember when we were talking about me leaving to go on this big road trip, I was like a little nervous about, you know, I'm such a homebody. I was like, what is it going to be like to (laughs) be in a different bed every night and be, or couch or, you know, camping, whatever. And and I've, I've I feel similarly to you something that you've been mentioning, which is that there is a lot of discomfort. But actually, I've been finding that that has kept me more alert and present, alive and alive. Yeah. So 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 speaking of like this whole idea of so so you had mentioned like all the ideas that happen in a city. Well, so actually, one yeah. thing that I've been experiencing on this trip is. I think you had also mentioned to me before that there's this idea that you have to be three months in a woods alone for you to have your own original thoughts.
0: I've heard this. I don't
1: know. I, know. I, I heard this too. And so that, but that like motivated me to not listen to anything on my car while I've been driving. So mm-hmm. I've been on the, I've been on the road mm-hmm. for like 85 hours at this point. I've, I'm in okay. DC now. I went from Seattle kind of all through the South up to here and it's resulted in a lot of discomfort, but every single time mm-hmm. it happens, I just focus on my breath and think and just let the thoughts pass by and like sit with them if if they need to be sat with. And I've realized that this has given me the space and enough alone time so that when I'm with people, I actually can just be where they're at because I am so grounded in my own experience and my own boundaries as a person that I can actually sit with somebody else and live fully in their experience and not have to be so concerned about my own because I've been able to, during the day, regulate, if you will, like my own like what I need.
0: Right. So you're not looking to other people to regulate you. And so you can just be present because you've regulated yourself.
1: Yeah. And I think there's a lot of comfort when I have my own room that I can be in my own space and feel like I'm comfortable and safe. But actually I could be like on social media or like doing all these other things that actually aren't necessarily regulating me, even though that's what I want.
0: Right. And and there's this, I mean, I want to acknowledge there's this like place of privilege of being able to travel, you know, like most people can't do that. Like they have to have a job and be stable and just trying to put food on the table. But with that being said, I, I think like I'm thinking when you're talking about this idea of traveling and the reason I love it so much, it's not because I want to consume other cultures or I want to learn about new things for the sake of learning. For me, the reason I've grown up and lived in so many places is because I want to be around as many people that are not like me as possible because it changes me and I learn things and arguably it's made me a very uncomfortable person that makes everyone uncomfortable. And to what you're saying is, I think what you're doing is you're replicating the same reason that creatives moved into the city. Mm. Or the same thing that people that were always in the city that created the vibrance and the diversity of thought in the city, that you're kind of replicating that experience in your travels because you're spending all of your time bumping up against people that don't think like you. And because you're not listening to music in the car and you're regulating yourself, you're actually able to be impacted and affected by them.
1: Yeah, and not get swept away by what they are either.
0: Right. 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 Because you're grounded in who who you are. Mm -hmm. But also, I think that, I mean, this goes back to what you were talking earlier about these permeable boundaries between us. And it's that sweet spot of saying, it's really hard. It's a lot of work to be like, I know who I am. And so it's a a fine line of saying, like, I'm not going to let you tell me who I am. I know who I am. And yet, I want to be open to being impacted by you. Yeah. And I think often we swing really heavily on one side or the other. I'm willing to let everyone tell me who I am, especially media and mm-hmm. all the movies we're watching and whoever the dominant voice is in the culture that we're in, and and whiteness and maleness. I'm willing to let all that tell me who I am. And so, really fighting, be like, I am not a man. I am also like, whiteness is not who I am. That is infected. That's an infection in my mind and who I am and the way that I'm thinking. And so thinking of that as like an infection of like, then I have to do work to figure out who am I? And then at the same time, remain open to being impacted by other people. And it's not threatening that they'll tell me who I am. And so therefore I can let them change me.
1: Yeah. And I think, especially with these identities, it's like growing up in a place where whiteness and maleness was celebrated, whether like consciously or not, and then being in a place that is so progressive, it like shows me all the evils and like negative sides of maleness and whiteness. It's, mm-hmm. it's been like really interesting for me to discover like neither of those are me. Like I have, like they, they help define and shape me, but like that's not who I am. Another thing I wanted to say was, one thing that's been really interesting on this trip is that since I've been in Seattle for four years, um, I've learned how to speak in certain ways and say things. Mm -hmm. And, and, and I know usually like a general reaction that I'm going to get from certain things that I say, like, of like, you know, political conversations or religious conversations. And the one, one thing that's been really great about this trip and also like kind of sad is that (laughs) I've, I'm like saying things, expecting a certain response and then it's not happening. And it's making me realize like how much I've changed the -hmm. way I interact with people because of the bubble of Seattle. Like as uh, there's just, mm-hmm. there's such a common response to things. And, and I think the sad oh. thing is that this, like actually how Seattle is, is generally how the art world is.
0: Right. You have been infected. We have been infected. And it is, <laughs> ugh, it is depressing me, but it also is really challenging me of, I, I think there is a certain amount of privilege it takes to travel. And yet I think to me, I always like, that's a solution. If anyone can travel in any capacity, do it because you have to realize that you are getting infected with homogeny and gentrification by staying where you are. It's not just like, oh, I only get to see see one side or my world's so small. It's like, no, it is messing with your brain and it is making you delusional to think that this is the way the world is. And I think the interesting part is technology is kind of the antidote to the privilege of traveling. And yet, that opens up all these other complications about who's authoring what we're seeing on technology. But back to what you're saying, I just kept thinking about, I I wonder if you're just getting a little, sometimes you don't realize that you've been infected until you get the medicine and you start to feel better. And you're like, wow, I I felt really shitty. Like, Whoa, everybody isn't responding to me the way that I'm expecting them to. Oh, something happened to my brain where I started to like get in this Pavlov's dogs kind of scenario where, I'm gonna say something. Someone responds. I know
1: it's like thank, thank goodness, like thank God, like people are responding differently.
0: So, what does it mean that Seattle is so has so much money and so much privilege and yet so homogenous? Because arguably, this (laughs) people have the capacity. Okay, this is the hub of gentrification.
1: Yeah, I mean, I mean, maybe (laughs) the hub. I mean, I I think it's because it's so isolated. I mean, it's so isolated from the rest of the country, like in so many ways. But why?
0: But that's what I'm saying is, if people have more money. But if people have more money here than anywhere else, and arguably they have the money to travel. But I wonder when they travel, they seek out familiarity and they stay in these little wealthy pods that look like they're wealthy pod in Seattle. And they're not actually rubbing up with people that are different than them. I don't know. Because I'm sitting there going like, there's enough money here for people to not be stuck here. So why is everybody so stuck here?
1: Yeah, uh, I don't know.
0: And it's growing rapidly. People are coming in. This is another thing. Seattle is growing so quickly and people are coming in rapidly from other regions, bringing in different mentalities. So why are they so quickly homogenized to Seattle?
1: Right. Well, and I was going to say, I mean, Seattle is not the same Seattle that it used to be like right. also the way that we're talking about Seattle. Seattle didn't used to be super wealthy. I mean, it has grown crazy wealthy since Microsoft and Amazon. And that's been a 30 year shift to be get, to get to where we are today. But the Seattle we know has been totally gentrified in the sense that there have been so many people that have moved here for these tech jobs that are not from Seattle that know what the aesthetic is that they want. This like gentrification of the mind is like happening because of right. because of the the tastes and like the trends of what people need as, because they are yuppies. They are the young urban professionals.
0: And here's my caveat for anybody who's listening right now. If you're listening, you're thinking, but I'm not like that. <laughs> Stop saying that all Seattleites are the same. Um, I would agree and I would say that we should use this moment to challenge how this dominant mentality has infected us, right? I've been here for seven years and I can tell how it's changed me in some good ways and also in some ways that it has made me think with a more homogeneity in my mind. And so I think anyone in the city, even if no matter how diverse your experiences that you're coming from or where you live and and not just Seattle, anywhere you are. I think that where we are begins to change who we are and we have to at least question that. Yeah. And you don't have to quit your job and travel around the country like Connor to figure that out.
1: Well, so, so that's what actually, I had something I want to say about that, which is uh, like yes, I do recognize the privilege it is that I get to be on this trip and actually I, I and I, it's been so amazing because I can recognize how impactful this trip is going to be in the future. Like I know now already that like in ten years, I'll be looking back on this trip and being like, that really shaped who I am today. Mm-hmm. I had to do this version of the trip because i I need experience in order to fully grasp and understand something, but for some people reading is enough. And for some people watching movies is enough to impact their, their hearts and their minds to actually see and understand other people and empathize. But so there's this quote by Jim Mad Dog Mattis, which some may remember as the Secretary of Defense for under Trump, and he actually resigned and he wrote a book after his time in office. But he has this really amazing quote, which is, if you haven't read hundreds of books, you are functionally illiterate and you will be incompetent because your personal experiences alone aren't broad enough to sustain you.
0: I'm going to argue, I'm going to push back against that. Do it. While I think it's a Band-Aid, you know, I often think Band-Aids can infect the wound more Um, because here's what I want to argue. With the creation of the establishment, maybe books were a way to expand your horizon when we had access to books written by people that weren't in the establishment. And so right now, movies, media, television, as well as books in the publishing world. There are gatekeepers determining what is available, what is made available. And so for me, the books that are really going to change my mind that I really need, the the, the, the books that are going to bring in a different perspective of something I've never thought of, sure, I can, I'm can. i reading all the time. And I, I'm a voracious reader. I read all the time. And I'm learning things I haven't learned. I'm also getting affirmed in things that I, I already believe. And those are the books I'm choosing. But the really voices that are pushing back, they're not getting published because they can't bring in enough money. And this brings us back to the very first conversation about the commodification of creativity. We have a problem because movies, TV, and books, if we can't travel, are one way to experience people and and even social media. It is all owned by people that have a prerogative and you will only learn about that prerogative. And often it's the dominant one. And the one with power and the one with money. One of my friends is going through a publishing program right now. And she always talks about how the way books are chosen to be published. One of the very first things is how many followers does that author have on social media? And you can write a fantastic book. But if you have no audience, you're not going to be chosen to publish anymore. Hmm. And that it's not just about the brilliance of what you're saying or who you are. And so... To your quote and your point, I want to say yes, and I want to say, but I think it's already been gentrified and infected, and that no longer is actually a solution.
1: I don't know. I don't think that's true. I think for us to just like go ahead and say that books aren't okay or like books are infected immediately, that seems like pretty defeatist to me.
0: I don't think it's well,
1: like just just sorry because. To,
0: sorry to well, just to, sorry to make you un- uncomfortable, but that might be true. Yeah. Well, no,
1: it's more just to say that like the internet has been an amazing tool for decentralized things to exist so actually there are plenty of blogs out there like the the main issue is that there's just too much content and the ones that are like put in front of us are through advertisements and so those are the ones that we see but that doesn't mean that they aren't out there
0: i'm not arguing that people shouldn't read or use the internet or watch media i'm just saying that there's a danger in thinking that that is going to replace actually just living in community and being in community with people that think differently than you yeah Because you are still being because you have to ask who's in power. Like anytime there's an institution that's creating gatekeeping, like maybe if if I'm reading well, read books from like you think, okay, well, I'll read books from a hundred years ago or or even from 50 years ago before books that were published and marketed weren't about who had social media followers. But then I'm like, well, who was in power back then? A bunch of rich white men. So then I'm like, that's a perspective. And so I'm not saying in a defeatist way that we shouldn't read i'm saying it's it's not enough it, it's it's if we think that that is enough then it is mm. allowing us to become comfortable enough that we think that it's enough mm. it's not i think it is com- complex that while i'm learning i'm also being infected by the system of power that is teaching me As a photographer and as an artist that worked mostly with the female body, you could argue that I'm highly educated, that I have a BA, I have two masters, and I've studied this. This is what I've studied in multiple levels, written multiple, like written theses about. And I look back and thought, holy shit, the way that I'm drawing this body, the way I'm photographing it, the way that I'm painting it was all defined by the male gaze. Why? Because all the textbooks were written by men, Mm. all of the rules were written by men everything was written by men. And so I don't even know how to look at the female body. And even though there is writing that's come out in the 60s and 70s, it's not in within academia. It's not within what is lauded as how to be an artist, what is aesthetically pleasing, what is going to get into museums and to galleries. I don't know. That's, that's my pushback on it is I am a voracious reader and my mind is constantly infected by the things I read. It is enlightened by the things I read. And it is infected by the things I read. It is enlightened by the perspectives I'm learning and it is infected by the systems of power that have lifted that thing to be in my hand in the first place. What do you think about that?
1: Yeah, I mean, that makes sense to me. Yeah. I mean, I think if if all writing and culture st- stems from like a place of where how we've been influenced and the structures that are in place to promote these works, I mean, yeah, it makes a lot of sense. So then what do we do with books I mean, we, we know uh, we've been experiencing that a lot in the past few years. It's like, it's, we're starting to cancel books and, and like works of culture because of the way people were or the, or the things that are like taught about in those books. And so it's a question of like, what do we do with that is the, is the answer to just say, let's not read it. And I'm actually coming at this from like a, like a, a religious perspective of like, why, why does the Bible like the Bible is so problematic in so many ways. And is there still a way for the Bible to bring truth and life to people's lives and wisdom? And, and it's just like, I think it's a faith in the spirit of the text that can ultimately prevail. And kind of back to what you we were talking about earlier, like the spirit of humanity. It's like, maybe there's like this, this part of the text that we, we come at any work with our own perspective and our own lens. And thankfully we are getting to a place where we're able to see, the biases and the partialities that we have. And, and as you're saying at these infections that we have, and we can then see that in the text too and be like, okay, this is obviously a patriarchal text. And so how do we actually reconcile that to bring us wisdom to today?
0: And that's why I just keep going back to this idea of when creativity is infected with gentrification, we have a big problem. And I think we have to begin examining when we feel uncomfortable, When we start seeking comfort, that needs to be level 10, red flag, what is going on? And so when we're talking about canceling books or looking for people that everyone likes, and that's why we want to support it, red flag, why? I think we need to start looking for discomfort. And that's a whole conversation. And I do want to say, and I'm realizing I have to go right now because I got to go pick up that check. But I, I want to say that we're creating this podcast, we're creating a platform, we're giving ourselves power to influence people, we are creating an institution. And I want to constantly be in check with myself. I want people listening to this, to email us, to write in and say like, hey, here's your blind spot. I don't want anyone listening to this podcast and learning anything from us. If there's one thing I want people to walk away with, I want them to walk away under saying that they don't know enough and they need to seek out people to learn more. Hmm. Because the moment that we're trying to influence people in a way to think, we're just using that position of power that technology's given us to spread our opinions and our thoughts to influence other people's minds. So if something that we're talking about is interesting to someone that's listening to this ask someone who doesn't agree with us, ask someone else who does, or ask for a million different thoughts. Like it's just the beginning. I think I, I just want to plant seeds of doubt. I just want, that's my whole <laughs> goal. I want to, I just want to plant seeds of doubt in everyone's mind so that maybe you can wonder if maybe you don't have the whole picture. Maybe you don't know everything you think, you know, maybe there's more to it. I don't want to get into a place where I'm telling people that I know something or, you know, something right. Um. So maybe this is not a good business model for a podcast. <laughs> at all
1: <laughs> no it's not
0: that's why I, I i want people to be uncomfortable and if we're not making people uncomfortable with this podcast i don't think we're it's worth making and it might take some work because i have realized how much my own creativity has been affected by this mm. idea of comfort and it yeah. comes to the commodification incitation of selling words selling those books you're talking about could have changed our minds a lot more if they weren't sold to us yeah because they had to create something that we would buy. I wonder how much books would change if we made it illegal to sell ideas and books and we just had massive libraries and anyone can write a book and it would go into the library. Anyone can write it, anyone can read it. You cannot sell it, you cannot purchase it. How much ideology and how many different ideas we would actually get to hear.
1: We would certainly hear a lot more ideas.
0: Arguably, that's what the internet is. Right.
1: I was like, it already happened.
0: (laughs) Yeah. But now the internet is even being commodified. All right. I got to go. Sorry. I know I've just, hopefully something in here is usable. (laughs) I hate to cut and run when I'm like disagreeing with you about something.
1: Oh, that's okay. We we But we got
0: to make money and we got to pay artists. So I got to go pick (laughs) up money from our fiscal sponsor so I can send some checks to our next artists. And we didn't talk about the work at all about uh, Marina and Rodrigo, but- listen to the podcasts yeah. where we talk to them yeah, we'll talk because to them. they do a better job of representing their work anyways.
1: Yeah. yeah, And we'll also be talking to a bunch of other people who will be expanding this conversation to many places that we weren't even able to get to on this podcast.
0: But here's what I realized when we edit podcasts, we never have a good ending. And so I'm going to create an ending right now. Thank you, Connor. It was great talking yeah, to you. Yeah, thanks,
1: Elle. This was great.
0: <laughs> <laughs> was it? It just made me uncomfortable. It
1: made me uncomfortable too, but... I guess like you All said right. that's the that's the goal.
0: Then we live another day.
1: <laughs> we live to fight another day. It's true.
0: We won't we won't cancel the podcast today. It's
1: <laughs> true. All right.
0: All right. Let us know what you think and join the conversation at interloperinterloper.com/podcast where you can leave us a comment, ask a question, or tell us what we missed or need to go deeper with. Interloper's vision is putting money into the hands of artists, saying the things we aren't supposed to say. If you'd like to support artists or this podcast, go to interloperinterloper.com slash funders to find out ways you can help increase creativity and in conversation. Finally, we released the podcast, new exhibition series, and more on the 29th of each month. The 29th of each month. The 29th. Of each month. So set your calendars and follow us on Instagram. At interloper underscore unlicensed. To find out what's next. Be sure to follow. And subscribe. Wherever you find your podcast. Interloper is a project of the Milkshake Club, which is powered by. Shen This episode was produced, edited, and recorded by Connor Walden. And Tiffany Danielle Elliott.
1: The song you heard in the podcast today is Lofi and La Fila de la Totiria i